0: taken from the book of Romans uh, chapter 11 which is on pages 1138 of your Bibles and we're starting with verses 1 and 2. I ask then did God reject his people by no means? I am an Israelite myself a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Now continuing at verse 29. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable, just as you who are at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Lord, may the words that I speak be the words that you want us to hear. May the words that we hear be grafted into our hearts that we may show forth your glory in our lives. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, it's good to be here once again. Thank you for your welcome. And uh, today we have another section of St. Paul. But what a a strange thing that, you know, we have two verses and three verses from the end. That's that's the whole text you just heard taken from that uh, passage. We will delve a little bit further into the missing bits of that text, because otherwise it's quite difficult to make sense of it. What, um, now then, let's have the first slide up, shall we? Fingers crossed. Yeah, there we go. Oh, stay there for now. Thank you. Yeah, so we had these these extracts. Um, But Paul, as you heard there, Paul begins today's extract with uh, one of his characteristic question and answer devices. I asked then, has God rejected his people? By no means. Very straightforward. But to some people listening to Paul there, the the actual question itself would have been uh, quite astonishing to contemplate that God would even think of rejecting his people Israel. What was Paul talking about? But to other people, the answer, by no means, would also have been astonishing. Of course, God has rejected his people. We are now the chosen people of God. He's doing something new in Christ. How can Paul not grasp this? So even a very brief opening question answer could have caused quite a lot of uh, controversy when people heard it the first time. Of course, it's much more subtle than that. But before we look at Paul's argument in chapter 11 the question itself needs some attention because it just seems to erupt from nowhere. Why is Paul asking that question then? We need to step back a few verses and look at uh, Romans chapter 10, the end of that that chapter. So if you just turn back a page to Romans chapter 10, page 1137, if you want to look in the Bible, and we'll hear from verse 16. So change slide, please. We're here from verse 16. Not all the Israelites accepted the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has received, believed our message? Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message. And the message is heard through the word of Christ. But I ask, did they not hear? Of course they did. And then he quotes from Psalm 19, their voice has gone out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, this is from Deuteronomy 32, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But concerning Israel, he he says, all day long I have held out my hands to disobedient and obstinate people. And then he continues, I ask them, did God reject his people? So the first verse we heard today is a continuation of a, a kind of a dialogue that Paul started in the previous chapter. And I think those sections at the end of chapter 10, I've just, just run through, give us quite a good summary of what is to follow in quite a lengthy and complex discussion. It's a bit like being at the theatre and hearing the overture to some, some concert or some musical and then the orchestra finishes, and then suddenly it comes in again. I ask then, has God rejected his people? Get into the main theme. Anyway, so we just heard um, in verses 1 to 2 and 29 to the end from chapter 11, we just heard a fairly succinct argument, but, which is saying that no, no, of course not. God has not rejected his people. His gifts and his calling will never be taken back. But the very last verse we heard in uh, ch- from chapter 11 about obstinacy, disobedience, and mercy, the end of the verse, end of that chapter, seems a little bit more opaque, a bit more difficult to understand. And I do think this is where we need to try and fill in the gaps between verse 2a and verse 29 of Romans 11 in order to help us understand what Paul is saying to us today. Third slide, please. And so to help us digest Paul's argument in Romans 11, I'm going to focus on these four headings under the overall title of Paul and the importance of the remnant. So there we have four four things I'm going to look at. First of all, the remnant, as described in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets. How does this concept of the remnant of Israel relate to the place of the Gentiles? What is the implication for the church? And what hope is there? So we have four questions I'm going to try and run through this morning. I'll try and finish before lunch, don't worry. So if we could just skip to the next slide, please. The remnant in the prophets. Paul refers to Elijah, quoting from 1 Kings chapter 19. This is found in Romans chapter 11, verses 2 to 6, uh, just after what we heard this morning. I'm going to read it for you. Chapter 11, verses 2 to 6. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Paul talks about this remnant from the people of Israel. There's also a passage in Amos chapter 9 that says, Surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Yet I will not totally destroy the descendants of Jacob, declares the Lord. For I will give the command and I will shake the people of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. Again, God's people are going to be sieved, tested, if you like. And all that is good will survive. There will be a remnant. We can also look, next slide, at Micah, chapter 2, and verse 12, where we read, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a sheepfold, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. A message of hope in a time when uh, the the community had gone astray and needed bringing back once again to the Lord there will be a restoration. A remnant will return and be brought back together. And the next slide shows us a quote from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 2 to 4. God will punish the shepherds who have failed to care for his sheep, and I will gather the remnant of my flock and will bring them back to their pasture. Similarly in Isaiah chapter 7. In Isaiah, in chapter 7, verse 3, we come across Isaiah's son, named Sheah Yashub, whose name means a remnant shall return. Isaiah was big on the idea of the remnant. It was very big on this, that there will be a pure remnant of the people who will carry forward God's message, who will keep faith with the Lord. In chapter 10 of Isaiah, he talks about Israel being sorely punished, but again, a remnant will return. And if you read Isaiah, there are many, many instances where where the prophet speaks about a remnant. A remnant who will be saved, who will return. A remnant who will hold fast to God's teaching. So in the Old Testament, which Paul is referring to early in chapter 11 in Romans, there's a big understanding of, a theology of the remnant. The faithful few who will keep faith with God. So that's there. That's the background. If we turn to the next slide, we come to the second question about how does this relate to the place of the Gentiles, the Gentiles being everybody else outside the people of Israel, the Gentiles including us today? Israel has been found wanting, and that is the constant theme in the prophets. Israel has, has failed, has, has turned their back on, on the Lord, come back to the Lord. They're always being asked Israel has been found wanting. So, you know, have they been replaced by somebody else? Well, as Paul says, by no means. They are not replaced. Paul argues very strongly that there is always hope for a remnant who can yet hear that that fresh message from God. But the key point he wants to make is that while Israel has become insensitive to the message of God, by God's grace, his word has then reached out beyond the people of Israel to the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 11, verse 11, we will read, again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. That sounds a bit... Odd to me, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. What's this about? If we look at verse 12 following, Paul says, but if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? So the people have stopped hearing the message And that message has then been taken out further to the Gentiles. And that is riches for the world, Paul is saying. That's that's good for everybody else. But he's also saying, if the people would come back to God and believe faithfully again, how much greater would those riches be with everybody brought back into one fold? He himself still identifying himself, not just with the Christian community, the new Christian church, but with his historic people, with his background in the Jewish community, with the people of Israel. Paul maintained clearly that sense of identity, that dual identity, if you like. And he continues in verses 13 to 15 of chapter 11, that he, as the apostle to the Gentiles, also hopes that through his ministry, some of his own people will be aroused to envy and be saved I am talking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, if only his own people would hear as he has heard, he says, that new message through Jesus How wonderful would that be? That life from death, how how fantastic would it be? Paul is clear in his thinking that although the message goes to the Gentiles, it still includes Israel. He sees himself allied with both of those communities. He also, in Romans 11 verse 16 he reinforces his view that Israel has not been abandoned with reference to the law um, in Romans eleven verse sixteen he says, "If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, which is some teaching from numbers, offer the first the first part of your dough as it were before you start baking, and the whole batch is holy. if the root is holy, so are the branches so Whatever God is doing in offering salvation to the whole world, to the Gentiles, is part of a bigger plan. Not to abandon his initial plan to work with his chosen people, but to bring all his creation back together, Israels and Gentiles together, in God's kingdom. And that appears to be the goal that Paul is advocating. That's Paul's understanding of what God was doing in sending uh, the message of Christ to the Gentiles. It's for our good, it's for the good of Israel, it's for the good of the world, he, th- he thinks. That's Paul's understanding of the situation. I hope some of that makes some sense somewhere along the line. Um, if we turn next to the next slide, please, what is the implication for the church? Because that's where it gets more meaningful for us, perhaps. Well, Paul um, returns in chapter 11, verse 17, to the root and the branch theme. If the root is holy, the, whole, the whole, whole bush is holy. And he's talking about branches being grafted onto an olive tree and branches being locked off the tree. He says in verse 17 to 21: If some of the branches have been broken off, referring to Israel, and you through and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root. Do not boast over those branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. In fairly gentle, yet very clear and direct tones, Paul warns us against arrogance or complacency about our place within God's plans. We have no right to be here within the fellowship of faith. We're here by grace, by responding to God's call. And if those who were once cut off can be grafted back in, surely, he says, those who have been grafted in later, the Gentiles, can also be cut off. There is no room for arrogance or complacency. Earlier in chapter 11, if you look at the next slide, earlier in, in chapter 11, verses um, 5 and 6, Paul says, so too, at this present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be Grace. And here we touch on that great quality of God's grace. And we touch on one of those mysteries of the Christian faith. Why does God care? Why does God give us life? Why does he call us and enable us to take our place in fellowship with him? Why? Whatever the reason, it has nothing to do with our own worthiness. All we are expected to do is to hear and to accept what God, by grace, out of his free will, gives, gives us. Therefore, we do well to hear that word of Paul in chapter 11, verse 20. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. Now, it's not like some kind of horror thing, be afraid, be very afraid. It's not that kind of thing. We're not to live cowering in fear of our rejection by God. We know that's a theoretical possibility. But we don't live in fear of that happening But rather what we should do is live in awe and wonder at God's willingness to welcome us in and his readiness to send his son to die for us and prepare the way to eternal life through faith. So we are to live in awe and wonder. We are to live with no arrogance or complacency but seek to live our lives faithfully according to our calling. And if we are considering the implications for us today we might do well to look at the way the church sometimes all too often perpetuates a them and us mentality in too many respects Paul wasn't into that he recognized that Israel had sinned and fallen etc but he he could see how the two the old and the new could be brought together but we we seem to f- struggle to avoid compartmentalizing and dividing within the church. We have Catholic and Reformed, Conservative and Liberal, High and Low, and so on. So many binary opposites that we, we sort of see in the life of the church. And that does not, I believe, serve to further Christ's work of reconciliation, which, after all, is, is what Paul is talking about, about bringing old and new together. It doesn't serve that reconciliation work. On the world stage, we have seen far too many incidents where violence and terror have been perpetrated in the name of some warped faith or ideology. And it almost feels sometimes that there are just so many incidents that there are too many to remember, let alone mention, which is an awful thing to, to feel. And one natural reaction is to erect barriers of some form or other, whether physical or, or, or you know, metaphorical barriers. We, we place barriers between us and other people. And we condemn the people on the other side of that barrier, even though they may have nothing to do with whatever terrible things are happening. In the short term, maybe we feel safer. We've protected ourselves. Keep them out there. But in the long term, nothing is done to tackle root causes. And those root causes have a habit of coming back. You've got to think about the ongoing tensions regarding race in America. These things don't go away. They come back. And we can no longer live with the view that only a small section of the population is of any importance. There are some who think that way and they're willing to use violence because of it. But that's not the way we should be. We are not to descend to that level because we know that God's kingdom has a table that is open insofar as God welcomes whomsoever he chooses, not the ones that we deem suitable and correct. But at a more parochial level, Don't we continue to divide God's church into factions, as I said a moment ago? Even amongst the faithful, we make decisions and judgments about who is right and wrong, who is orthodox, who's a heretic. We judge who is right in their theology and their practice. And those who are not are considered just plain wrong. Next slide, please. Can't we just all get along? The church, of course, has to make decisions on what teaching is true to the message of Jesus. The truth has to be authentic in its presentation of the gospel. But there does seem to be a bit of a descent into factional politics within the church, and that's not a pretty sight. And it won't help us in reaching out to a faithless, yet often searching and yearning world around us. We need to find better ways of handling our disagreements within the church. We need to let go of the assurance and arrogance that sometimes infects the life of the church. And let's instead look in awe and wonder at what God is doing in our lives and rejoice in our hope of salvation and get out into the street bringing through word and deed the same message of hope to anyone who is ready to hear and respond. So moving on to hope. What hope is there? I think I must have messed up again here. Never mind. Um, Come to that in a moment. What hope is there? There is hope for us, for we have heard and we have responded to the call of Christ. But Paul goes to great lengths to make it clear that hope exists for everyone, whether Gentile or Jew. The call that went out to Israel will not be taken back, despite disobedience along the way. And we too, as Gentiles, have now received God's mercy. The fact that the concept of God's chosen people has been extended to embrace us means that there remains the opportunity for those who have been disobedient to be drawn back, grafted back onto the tree, as it were. If we just slip back one, I'm sorry. Thank you. just want to come to something that William Barclay once said. Through it all, he said, God's purpose was the purpose of salvation and not of destruction. In the last analysis, it was not the wrath of God which was pursuing men, but the love of God which was tracking them down. It is the story of the still uncompleted pursuit of love. God doesn't want to let anyone go doesn't want to let go of his people, his children, his creation. We heard earlier on a phrase from um, Isaiah at the end of that bit I read from chapter 10. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. God continues to hold out his hands, even to those who turn away from him. That's good news for us because those hands are there to welcome us. Remember the forgiving father and the prodigal son. Those hands are there to welcome us back. Those hands are there to welcome others back who may have strayed away from following faithfully God's teaching. It's that incomplete pursuit of love, that pursuit of love that still goes on. It does seem to all come down to God's love at the end of the day. I know the Beatles sang, All You Need Is Love. It's a bit trite sometimes when we hear that kind of thing, but it's kind of true. We do need love, but it's the love that comes from God that we really need. God's love that overflowed into creation, and for all our failings, still longs to, to bring us back to him when we stray. That still longs to bring all creation back to him. So next slide, please. Oh, back. Sorry. That's it. <laughs> So I messed up the slides earlier on, so it's my mistake. God wants to bring all things back to him, and that's what Paul says in Colossians 1, chapter 1, verse 19. If you want to find that, it's on page 1182 of the Bible. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile to himself all things, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. It's all things. That's That's one of the refrains in Colossians, all things. Not just us, not just his children, but all things. It's a kind of a cosmic view of God's salvation. God wants to bring all together. Those hands are still held out to a disobedient and obstinate people. Those hands of love and welcome never, never fail. So all of Paul's wrestling with concept of Israel and the Gentiles his wrestling with being called and disobedience with branches that are cut off and grafted on and chopped off again all of that brings us back to that simple essential quality of God which is love God is love and those who live in God live in love and God lives in them we're hearing in 1 John it was out of love that God created the universe and inhabited inhabited it with his creation, his his creatures. It was out of love that God remained faithful to his chosen until in the fullness of time, a new phase of his plan for redemption dawned. As out of love, he sent his only son to bring us home, the one who, out of love, paid the price on the cross and was content to shed his blood so that we might have new and eternal life. All God really asks is that we, in return, love him, and that we love him by offering our faithful prayers and devotions and service, and that we show the same love for all our fellow creatures. But briefly, to come to a conclusion, what does love look like? What does it mean to show that love? There are many examples, I hope, that we could all think of of how people have shown God's love in so many ways, there were many images we could use. but I just want to share a small one from yesterday. In there, that's actually my daughter with her dog, Buster. He's a, cross, a, a crossbreed staffie. Um, now, my daughter was in town yesterday with Buster, and she was waiting outside the Fishergate Centre for a friend. If anybody walked past her, I hope she didn't make you feel intimidated. She's quite sweet, really. But she, she, uh, she is, really. She shaved her head, you see. She, she looks a bit scary. But uh, anyway, st- with a, with a staffy, you know, on the lead. But she was waiting outside the Fishergate Centre, and a chap came along who was uh, a homeless chap who was uh, just, you know, hanging around on the street. And he came and was really attracted by Buster. And he got down and started, started petting the dog and so on, chatting to Emily, much, much to her shock. And he had a, a cup of soup in his hand, And of course, the dog was sniffing this soup and Emily laughing, jokingly said, oh, yeah, he's after your soup. And this guy took out a spoon and he got some soup on the spoon and gave it to the dog. Really sweet, really loving. And the thing is, you know, this man was giving from the very little he had to a dog on the street. It was an expression of love. Giving from the little we have to someone else. That's what it comes down to, that expression of love. Giving from the little we have to anybody who needs it. That's one way of looking at it. That's one down-to-earth way, I hope, of looking at this, this, this thing. On a bigger level, God's actions remain a mystery in many ways. What, what is all this about, this grace of God, all this freely given love? You know, what does it, what, what's it all about? And sometimes we cannot really understand What God is doing, what God has done, what what Paul is telling us. And sometimes it's as though we have to say, I I cannot grasp it with my mind, but with my whole heart, I trust your love, your will be done. That's sometimes all we can say. And we can join with Paul in expressing our amazement and wonder at what he does. When we look at the, the end of chapter 11, chapter 11, verse 33 to the end. I'd like to finish with these words um, with this acclamation of praise that Paul himself adds to the chapter using verses from the book of Job and it's a prayer that reminds us that for all the complexity of Paul's arguments at heart it all comes back to the love and the grace of God. Oh the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory for Amen.